Let us talk about stocks in the second of my multi-part intro to investing series in this, the 58th episode of the Retirement Planning Education Podcast. Welcome to the Retirement Planning Education Podcast, where you can learn all about IRAs and Roth IRAs, employer retirement plans, taxes, social security, Medicare, portfolio withdrawal strategies, annuities, estate planning, and much more. And now here's your host, Andy Panko. Welcome back, everyone. Today we have the one about stocks. I'm pumped. I don't know about you. So yes, today is part two of a multi-part series of my intro to investing, where again, this series is intended to be a overview of kind of the basics, soup to nuts, uh, try to make it as as rudimentary as possible, uh, yet still make it valuable. And hopefully even those that are a little more experienced and understanding in this, pick pick a little something up from uh, hopefully a few of the episodes in this. Uh, the the next few parts, this is part two of, I don't know how many parts, but the next one, uh, part three will be about bonds. Part four will be about mutual funds and exchange traded funds. Then uh, to be determined after that. I have a few ideas floating around in my head. I'm not yet sure what exactly I'll end up doing or what's going to make it to its own episode or you know whatever. So before we get into it, uh, I have to disclaim, disclose that this is definitely not advice. This is not investing advice. This is not tax advice. This is not legal advice. Nothing here is a recommendation to buy, sell, hold, or or do whatever with with it, with any specific securities. Um, I, I will be making mention to some company names here, just sort of anecdotally to to um, give you some information and context. But it's definitely not a recommendation saying you should or should not buy or do anything with any of those names. It's just purely data and, and, and reference I'm, I'm using here. So today's episode, all about stocks again. Now, um, sorry to let you down, but this will not be telling you uh, exactly how to invest. Again, definitely not what you should invest in. It's really just giving you the, the education, the framework and understanding of, of the different angles of stocks, investing in stocks. So you can help decide if they are right for you as a whole. And if they are, you know, how to start considering which ones to maybe uh, buy that you want to buy, you know, how to buy them and also talk about a lot of terminology. So it's explaining what stocks is, uh, you know, or what stocks are, I guess it is in, you know, mechanically how to actually buy them and talk a lot about the, the, how to try to value them or price them. Like what's a stock supposed to be worth? You know, you buy it for something, you hope it's going to go up in price. How do you know or expect what that price may be? We're going to talk about that. And I'll, and I'll wrap about some terminology, things like uh, terms like market cap, where I'll explain what that means, talk about uh, different sectors, what those are, and talk about the the few main indexes or indices, at least here in the US. So anyway, uh, let's get into it. Now, like uh, the, uh, the, I guess the theme of this whole multi-part series, like any investment, these aren't the only options. It's not the only thing out there. There's, there's more than one way to invest. There's more than one thing to invest in. Um, stocks just happen to be one of the most known, I guess, most common type of, of traditional investment, at least financial investment. Uh, it, it's very liquid, meaning you can buy and sell it, you know, stocks uh, pr- pretty easily and quickly. It's very visible because there are channels like uh, CNBC, there's written media outlets like Wall Street Journal, Barron's, Forbes, uh, whatever else. Um, they're, they're, they're kind of glamorous, or at least the industry makes them out to be glamorous. Like you turn on CNBC, for example, or Bloomberg Television, and it's not a coincidence that you see, you know, uh, good-looking, well-dressed hosts broadcasting live from the floor of some stock exchange with with big, glittery, flashy 
flat screen TVs all over with bright, colorful logos. And, you know, it, it, may, it makes for a good show talking about this. And, and given the sort of mystique of stocks and all the, the money that's been made and lost in stocks over the years, over the decades, uh, it, it's, it's, it's captivating sort of thing. So anyway, um, you know, you, I'm sure you all listening have heard of stocks. You may not know exactly what they are, but I'm sure you've heard of them. Whereas other types of investments you may not even have heard of. So, uh, you know, st stocks aren't the only game in town by far, but they are one of the more common, uh, more used forms of traditional financial investments uh, in a lot of people's uh, portfolios. So stocks as a whole are fairly risky in that their prices can swing around a lot. It's not like, you know, the opposite end of the risk spectrum is, is buying a certificate of deposit from a bank. And I'll talk about that in a future episode. But basically, that's just where you give a bank, you know, a thousand bucks, whatever, 10,000 bucks. They, they, they uh, guarantee to give you back that 10,000 in a certain amount of time, one year, two years, whatever it may be, plus some amount of interest. And you know what that interest is going to be. So minimal variability, you know, with, uh, you know, guarantee what you're going to get and when. Very different from stocks. Uh, with stocks, maybe your what you pay for, you'll end up getting a lot more for, or maybe you'll get a lot less for, or worst case, maybe it goes bust and you get zero. So uh, in any given day, any given week, any given year, the price of the stock can move around a lot, maybe up a lot, maybe down a lot, who knows. So very uh, substantially riskier than low risk things like bank, you know, traditional bank products like certificates of deposits. There's no guarantees from companies. Uh, the kind of the price is what it is, is as, as we'll talk about. So uh, let's talk about what a stock in, in, in very broad conceptual terms, what is stock? It's equity. And what is equity? That That's just fancy term for ownership interest in something. Specifically for stocks, it's ownership interest in a company, you know, a company that builds things, makes things, provides a service, whatever. Uh, stock, aka equity, is just a, a small slice of ownership in that company. Um, what's unique about stocks and, and what I'm talking about today is, is what's called publicly traded stocks. I'll explain more what that means. It, it's... Individuals like us, you, me, everyone else listening, friends, family, can all go out and buy small slices or even large slices if they have enough money, can buy ownership interest, can buy equity interest, can buy stock in these big companies, companies we all have heard of, uh, McDonald's, Boeing, American Express, JP Morgan, Apple, Amazon, Google, whatever. You can buy and sell these ownership interests freely, quickly, easily. That's stock. You can hold it as long as you want, or you know, you can you can buy and sell pretty quickly intraday, you can hold it for multiple days, you can hold it for a few weeks, uh, whatever. There's no single timeline or uh, you know right amount of time necessarily to hold it. So um, let, let me step back a little more. I, I really feel like I need to paint a picture of, of what it fundamentally means to have an ownership stake in a company. So I got to start with a quick accounting lesson. This is going to be kind of dry. Those of you who have had accounting uh, in school before, you're going to know what I'm talking about, but I think this is important. And this is going to pull into next episode as well when I talk about bonds. So if you have a business, an asset is, is, is what the business owns. And then liabilities or equity are is how those assets were financed or paid for, basically. And not to make this too mathy, but the total amount of a business or a company's assets need to be equal to the sum of the business's liabilities and equity. Now, what's liability? Liability is simply, uh, well, asset is something a company owns, Liability is something a company owes. So like if you if a company borrows money, takes a loan from a bank or something, that's liability. That's a debt. You know, th think about debt as another word for liability. 
And equity is the, the, the ownership interest in the company, in the assets, for example. This assets equals liability plus equity equation is what's called the balance sheet, a company's balance sheet. So let's think about a, a basic example you all can probably visualize pretty easily. You want to start a business where you're going to be making uh, t-shirts, you know, screen printing t-shirts. You have $10,000 worth of cash savings that you've saved up. You take that $10,000 and you use it to start this business by buying some printing, you know, screen printing equipment, uh, buying ink, I suppose, and then buying, you know, boxes of blank shirts. So you can then put your whatever, you know, put the, the letters on and, and go sell them. This $10,000 is the equity you put into this business, right? So now the business owns its assets are $10,000 worth of equipment, you know, screen printing equipment and ink and shirts. That's its assets. You have no liabilities. You didn't borrow any money. There's no debt in the business. So liabilities are zero, which means the equity, the ownership interest in the business has to be the same $10,000. Your assets are 10,000. That's everything the business owns. There's no liabilities, no debts against it. So therefore the equity, the value of the business is $10,000 in this case. So $10,000 cash you put in is your equity, your ownership, your stock in this business. That stock, plain and simple. Now, this is a private, uh, you know, this this little example I'm giving, this is a private company. Um, it's not one that you can buy and sell on an exchange, you know, through, through an E-Trade account or, you know, brokerage account or something. But this is nonetheless fundamentally what equity is, what stock is. It's the ownership interest in a company. Make sense so far, hopefully? Good. Um, now, if, if the company were to take on some debt, like in addition to the $10,000 cash you put in to buy the equipment and shirts, if the company were to borrow another $10,000, let's say, from a bank, they took a loan to go buy $10,000 more worth of stuff, there would then be $20,000 of total assets. There'd be $10,000 of equity, which is the amount of loan, I'm sorry, 10,000 liabilities, which is the amount of loan outstanding. And there'd be still the ten thousand dollars of of equity, you know, ownership interest. So, again, the twenty thousand dollars assets has to equal liabilities plus equity, which is ten plus ten. So I'm getting a little off track now with the accounting lesson, but uh, you know, I thought this was important stuff to uh, to uh, run by you all now as we start to talk about what exactly is equity fundamentally. So now this little cheesy example I gave this is this is a private company, private equity, if you want to call it that. Um, it is not publicly traded, meaning the the equity ownership interest, the stock ownership of this company is owned by you, the one who bought these machines and started this business. It is not publicly traded, which is the stuff we're, we're talking about for the majority of today. Um, publicly traded stocks come into existence when, when a business that, that was privately owned sells off some or all of its equity, of its ownership interest to the public. And why would they do that? So in return for giving up or selling off some or all their equity interest, the company takes in money, right? right? The, the people who are buying, you know, the, the public people who are buying these shares now that they're offered, that cash goes into the company. The company then can do with it as it pleases, basically. That's a permanent source of cash, permanent source of capital. Uh, they, they don't need to give that money back. It, it's it's now the company's money to, to use and, and do with as it pleases. So now let's, let's uh, keep piggybacking a bit off our little example. Um, your business is still just a $10,000 of equity, right? 10,000 cash, bought equipment, bought shirts. There's no liabilities yet. Your equity is $10,000 in the company, all of which is owned by you. You want to sell off some of it, let's say. You want to sell off, I don't know, 40% of your $10,000 of ownership interest in your private company. So you sell off $4,000 of equity to, to the public. And um, you, you want to slice that $4,000 into different 
individual quote unquote shares where each share represents one sort of little slice, one little piece of ownership, right? So you can have multiple, as many shares as you want in theory. And, and let's assume that the share, each share is going to be worth $10. So each individual ownership interest you're selling off is going to be worth 10, you know, 10 bucks. So if you're selling off in total $4,000 worth of equity in your company and the per share price for one little slice of this ownership is $10, that means there's going to be 400 shares in total that you're selling out to the public. So 400 shares times $10 per share equals the $4,000 of, uh, you know, uh, ownership interest that, that you that you sell off. So now, when you when you sell off this four thousand out of ten thousand dollars of ownership you have in this company, you get four thousand dollars cash into the company that's permanently yours. Well, by yours I mean the company, but permanently the company is the company can do with that as it pleases. It can use it to buy four thousand dollars more of screen, uh, you know, shirt printing machines. It can hire, you know, start to hire people, wh whatever it may be. That's the upside. The downside now, you just gave up 40% of your ownership interest in the company and 40% of all the economics or, you know, or money that the company makes ultimately now isn't yours. It goes to the people that bought these, these, you know, these uh, shares for you when, when you, when you sold them. Um, another consideration is these shares generally, when you sell them to the public will have voting rights, meaning each shareholder has one vote, you know, one share equals one vote. Uh, on, on company matters like reorganizations or, you know, general sort of uh, company direction and strategy sometimes or, or things that are voted upon by by shareholders. Um, now, in this particular case, you still maintain a majority because you still own 60% of the company. You only sold off 40. So it doesn't matter. Uh, frankly, it doesn't matter much at, at all if, you know, how those shareholders vote because you still have 60% of, uh, uh, of the voting rights within the company. So you still control it. But Anyway, so so that's in a nutshell. This is what a stock is. It, it's it's a, uh, one individual stock or one share is one of multiple little slices of ownership in uh, a company. And when the public has these shares, meaning you and I can go and buy these shares freely in the market, that's called a public company versus a private company where the shares are owned by you know, small handful of individuals or, or other companies or whatever, but they don't actively trade it. You can't go and freely buy it. It would be this big private transaction if you were to buy it, sort of like buying a house from someone. If you buy a house, it's a private transaction. You don't buy a house through an exchange or something. You know, it's a big customized legal and paperwork involved type transaction. Um, the, the name of the process of a private company selling shares to the public at least the first time that they sell shares to the public is called an initial public offering or IPO. And this is a process by which a private company first sells some or all of its uh, ownership shares out into the public world, where again, they, they, you know, they sell off these shares in return, the company gets cash. The downside is they give up some or all or sell off some or all their ownership. And now the public is, is, is the one, you know, people who bought these shares are the ones who own the shares and they're free to, uh, you know, trade them, sell them to whomever they want. Now, the size of companies doing these initial public offerings substantially larger than this cheesy little $10,000, you know, uh, screen printing um, example that, that, I, that I concocted here. So for example, in 2022, the largest IPO was a South Korean company called LG Energy, Energy Solutions, sold off $10.7 billion of ownership interest in its company to the public. Um, that's pretty big, you know, much bigger, much bigger than 10 grand. The largest IPO ever was Saudi Aramco in 2019 was $25.6 billion. This was a, a Saudi Arabian energy company. 
So that, that, that that's real money. You know, those are big stakes there as opposed to 10,000 bucks we're talking about. So, um, so that's the IPO or initial public offering process. The next, and this is probably why I came here, but um, why buy stock as an investment? And hopefully by the end of this episode, you, this will all the stuff will sort of tie together and you'll start to visualize and click and see um, how and why to uh, potentially invest in stocks. But um, I tried to make this as elegant and eloquent as I could and trying to lay out the sort of talking points here. But anyway, so why why buy stock as an investment? Now, recall from the last episode, the first episode of this, you know, the first part of this multi-part episode is investment in the traditional sense is something you buy with the expectation that it will do one of or, or two things, pay you income while you own it and or go up in price such that you can sell it at a price that's higher from where you bought it. Those are two different potential ways to make money in an investment and a stock is no different. So with a stock, some stocks pay what's called a dividend. A dividend is when the company generates or has cash from the normal course of its business and operations and gives some of that cash back to the shareholders. Because remember, since shareholders own the company, they are literally owners of the company. Anything the company has is technically owned, at least in part, by, by, by the shareholders. And I say in part because, again, if, if you own one share of a company and there's a million shares outstanding, you only own one one millionth of that company, you only have one one millionth of the voting rights of that company, et cetera. But so, so dividends are when companies, you know, create cash from selling their product and it ends up they, you know, they, they have, they, they get more cash for the year than they use. What do they do with that cash? A lot of companies choose to pay some of that cash back to, to the shareholders kind of, I don't say as an, uh, as a reward, but it's like, here, this is your money. You own this company. You can have this cash. You, you can do with it as you please. So that, that, that's what a dividend is. And if you, if you own stocks that pay dividends, that's one of the two ways in which you make money in investments. Remember, you make money from getting income from owning it and or selling it for a price that's higher than what you paid for it. So getting dividends from a stock is, is, is the source of income or a source of income from, from stocks that pay dividends. Now, not all stocks pay dividends. Typically, the companies that are smaller, still growing, or have uh, riskier business models, you know, less stable uh, cash flows and business models from the business, they, they're, they're more likely the ones that do not pay dividends. Instead, the cash they generate, if when they do generate cash, they'll turn around and pump it back into the business to, to grow, to use that cash to buy plant or equipment or do research and development, you know, to the next big product or, or whatever it may be. Um, or they keep it as a buffer, knowing that the business might be a little less stable you know, if they have a good year, they may they may build up a war chest of cash, knowing that a bad year might be around the corner. So they'll, they'll keep that war chest of cash to help uh, you know, cushion uh, future years that, that may not be so good performance wise. The uh, S&P 500, which I'll talk more about what that means, which stands for Standard and Poor's 500, is uh, basically an index that, that references 500 of the largest or the 500 largest stocks traded in the US. Um, again, I'll comment more about that. But that approximately 80% or 400 of the 500 companies uh, referenced in that index do happen to pay dividends. So a lot of a lot of companies do pay dividends. Um, not all do by any chance. Again, the S&P 500 is the 500 largest companies traded in the US. So like I said before, generally, it's a smaller or newer or riskier companies that, that often don't pay dividends, whereas the larger, more established more stable businesses are more likely to pay dividends, which kind of explains why, you know, of the largest uh, companies in the country, most of them, i.e. 80%, uh, do, do, do pay dividends. 
Additionally, many, many companies that do pay dividends, especially the more, again, established and stable the business is, they often try really hard to keep up the, the track record of dividends, continue to pay dividends uh, every quarter, typically, and also increase them uh, year by year by, by a modest, maintainable, sustainable amount. Uh, generally, are oftentimes investors who, who like dividend stocks, they don't want to see wild fluctuations. Like maybe they get a dollar in dividends per share this year and only 50 cents next year and a dollar 80 the next year. They usually don't like that. It's like, okay, if I get 50 cents this year, I want to get 52 cents next year, 54 cents next Like these companies that pay stock uh, dividends often try to, to do them consistently with, with some, uh, you know, uh, consistent growth as well. So that's one way uh, or, or one reason why you buy stock as investment is to potentially get dividends. The other Again, it's price appreciation, which means you know, appreciation just means something goes up in value. So you buy something low and sell it high. The old, you know, the old buy low, sell high adage about stocks. This is uh, especially important for stocks that don't pay dividends, right? Because if you're not getting an income stream from the stock, then the only way to make money as an investment is to sell it for more than what you paid for it. So for the non-dividend paying stocks, it's it's the price appreciation, it's the buy low, sell high that is. The reason why you would potentially invest in them, trying to make yourself from some money from from you know buying at a low price, eventually selling it at a high price. So that's the two reasons in general why you would buy a stock as an investment, just like you'd buy anything for an investment, is to get some income from it, or uh, eventually sell it at a price that's higher than uh, than what you paid for it. Just another uh, comment about dividends. There's something called the dividend yield, which is just a formula that simply is the uh, you take the current amount of the annual dividends that a stock pays per share and divide it by the share price, current current share price. So for example, you own share of a stock, its price is currently $100 per share, and each share pays $2 in dividends uh, per year currently. That means the dividend yield at the moment for the stock is 2%. So again, it's a $2 annual dividend divided by the $100 current price is a 2% dividend yield. Um, and just something to think about, while the dividend, the dollar amount of dividends may stay fixed at $2 per year or may, you know, trickle up slightly, you know, as I said, companies often try to consistently grow dividends. While the dollar amount of dividends may be static, maybe the same thing, um, the share price will inevitably move around, could go higher, could go lower, et cetera. Therefore, the dividend yield could change. Again, dividend yield is just current annual dividend divided by current price. Current dividend, again, remember, our assume it stays fixed, but it's the price that the denominator is going to move around. So dividend yield can change, go up, go down. Now, if you already bought the stock for the dividend and you continue to, you continue to hold it, frankly, it doesn't really matter what the dividend yield or how the dividend yield changes over time. You'll keep getting your, your dollar amounts of dividends. They'll be what they'll be. If you don't plan on selling the stock, um, then it doesn't really matter what the dividend yield is. It doesn't really matter per se what the price of that stock does because you you know you bought it just to get these dividend income uh, throughout throughout the years. Um, anyway, so important thing to know, and, and I touched on this last week again. With there's two possible sources of income or, or return from owning an investment. It's it's income while you own it, and or selling it for more than what you paid for it. You have to look at what's called the total return of any investment. Uh, especially stocks in today's case, where total return is the combination of both of those sources of, of return, income plus any potential gain or loss on, on selling it. This is especially true for dividend paying stocks. And here's why. This is a little technical, but stick with me here for a moment. Um, every time a, a stock pays a dividend, the stock's price drops by the amount of the dividend. 
So it's ultimately a wash. For example, if you get paid a $2 dividend this quarter on your share of stock, all else equal, the uh, the share price of that stock is going to drop by $2 when that dividend's paid. So it's a wash. You just made $2 on your dividend, but you just lost $2 from your share price. Now it's $2 lower. The company value doesn't change. And here, here's why. If, if a company has a million dollars of cash sitting on you know in its bank account from its operations this year, uh, let's just assume the company's worth $10 million in total. One million of that value is is the cash it has sitting in its bank accounts, right? So the company's worth $10 million. If it pays that million dollars out to the shareholders, the company now is worth a million dollars less. All else equal, the company now is only worth $9 million. It just, it just literally gave away or gave out a million dollars of its value to the shareholders. So company value has to drop by a million dollars down to $9 million total. The share price, therefore, has to decrease as well because a stock price is really nothing more than um, the, the, the total value of the company divided by all the shares outstanding. That's the stock price. It, it really is that simple in theory. There's much, much more to it as I'll talk about, but that's the theory. So if the, if the total value of the company just dropped by a million dollars because they gave out money to the shareholders, the, share, the price of the shares needs to drop by that same amount in total. Um, so the it, wealth is neither created nor destroyed. If you're a shareholder who owns a dividend paying stock, you may be like, oh, cool. You know, I just got $2 out of nowhere from getting paid this dividend. Good for me. Well, guess what? The value of your shares dropped by $2. So again, wealth is neither created nor destroyed. Now, this doesn't mean dividend investing or dividend stocks are necessarily good or bad. When you step back and look at it from a total return perspective, which is what you have to look at it with any investment, you're not necessarily better off or worse off. Again, you're getting $2 of dividend, but you're losing $2 in share value. It's ultimately a wash from a total return perspective. So now there's different theories about how or why dividend investing could be good, could be worse. Um, uh, you know, I'm not here to say which one's better or worse. Uh, different people have different views, but from a total return perspective, the, the sort of right objective answer is it, it doesn't matter. Dividend, a company paying dividends is just simply them forcing upon you, the shareholder, realization of some of the value as opposed to you taking it upon yourself to realize when you see the value by deciding when you sell the shares, right? Because they're paying you out money and dividends, but your share price drops. So again, your wealth is neither created nor destroyed here. Right, that's enough about dividends. I don't want to get too off on a tangent here. All right, let's now start talking about stock prices. This is the good stuff. Um, by good stuff, I mean... so. The goal, obviously, if, if you're going to buy something, you want it to go up. You you wouldn't buy something where you know for certain the price is going to go down. That would be silly. So now the question is, okay, well, how do you try to determine whether a stock price is going to go up or go down and buy how much and when? Good luck. If you find out a way, uh, you know, foolproof way, let me know because that, that, that's the holy grail if you can crack that. Now, uh, like I said, obviously, if you knew something was going down, you, you wouldn't buy it because that'd be a guaranteed loss. And what's the point? Now, technically, there are, there are ways you can profit from shares going down. It's called a short sale, where instead of the traditional buy low and sell it high, this is uh, sell high and buy it back low. You know, you're, you're reversing the order. So basically, you would borrow shares you don't own if you think the value is high. You then sell them now at the high price, hope the stock price drops, buy it back later when the price does drop, um, and then you know use those shares you just bought back to, to deliver to close out the borrow the, you know, uh, of shares that you had. Anyway, I'll, I'll leave that there. So, um, you know, you're, some, you're, you're buying this on the assumption, the belief, on the view that this share price should go up, uh, hopefully by some amount, by, by some point. 
but what's the price supposed to be? How do you know if the price of the stock now is too high, too low, or if it's fairly valued? Again, this, this is the holy grail. Um, th the share price fundamentally is nothing more than whatever the total value of the company should be or is, divide that by all the shares outstanding. That's what the share price should be. In our simple example before, it was pretty easy to see the value of the company was $10,000. It was you know, literally $10,000 worth of machines, ink, and uh, blank shirts. And if we sold off 40% of that, again, it was 400 shares that were sold, um, you know, $4,000 is the value of the total totality of the public shares floating around. And if there's 400 shares outstanding, each share should be $10 per share. Pretty simple. Again, 400 shares times $10 equals to $4,000 of uh, ownership interest that was sold off. But in reality, it's much more complicated than this basic janky example I just gave. Think about a, a multi-billion dollar company that has operations and assets and buildings and intellectual property rights all around the globe. How do you even attempt to try to value that, right? I mean, there's people who do that professionally. They, they make a job out of it. Um, not to say they're right. I mean, they at least try. But the, you can you can hopefully start to see how incredibly difficult it is to try to come up with the value of the company as a whole, until you do that, you can't attempt to figure out is the, is the value of each share price uh, or is the price of each share accurate or fair for what it should be based on the totality of you know what, what the company's value is. This is why it's so hard. Um, companies do, like our example, where $10,000 worth of machinery and shirts and ink, that's called the book value. It's, it's the actual literal value of everything the company owns minus any debts or liabilities it may have it may have that's what's called the book value now companies even the biggest largest companies out there including those that are that do have publicly traded stock they no doubt report their book value they have to it, it, it's it's law it's securities law they need to every year do audited financial statements that show the value of all their assets all their liabilities all their equity so there is a quote-unquote book value of what the stuff is actually worth but the value of the company as viewed by shareholders isn't necessarily equal to the book value. In, in many cases, it's not actually. So now you're like, okay, that's real confusing. And, and yes, it is. Uh, and I'll, I'll hopefully try to make more sense of it as we march through this. There's a lot of, so, so you may be asking, okay, well, if the value of the company and therefore the value of the shares outstanding isn't just simply its book value or the literal value of all the stuff it owns, what is its value supposed to be? Well, there's lots of frameworks and, and, processes used to try to value a company and therefore value uh, the stock price, you know, what a price of a share should be. And most of them are actually forward-looking, making assumptions about what the company might do or is expected to do or hope to do going forward. One of the more common forward-looking uh, valuation techniques is looking at the company's quote-unquote earnings. And earnings are just simply the net profit, the net income that the company makes from its normal course of business, from selling widgets, or if it's you know, a service-based company, from, from the, the revenue it gets from selling its services minus all the costs it has in running the business of selling those services. Once you uh, can come up with a, with a decent idea of what the company's earnings or net income or profit are supposed to be, then there are some sort of informally agreed upon rules of engagement for, for what the price of that company, what the price of those company shares should be relative to its earnings. So common way to go about this is try to project what you think the company's earnings will be over the next 12 months, for example, 
and then set a share price based on that. Historically, now the past is no guarantee of future results, but historically, the the the, the investment market, you know, the the stock investors as a whole and aggregate have collectively sort of agreed that a share price that's roughly fifteen to twenty times higher than the company's expected earnings next year is what's what's usually viewed as a fair or reasonable share price. Now that's still a pretty wide range. If if the earnings are supposed to be you know hundred bucks and you have a uh, you know historically agreed upon rules of engagement valuation that says okay the company value should be fifteen to twenty times that. That means company value now is fifteen to twenty times hundred bucks, which would be fifteen hundred bucks at two thousand um, dollars. Doesn't mean that's right. You know that's just sort of historically what's kind of ended up being agreed upon as as the norm. So there's there's a ratio for this. It's called the price to earnings ratio or PE ratio. And this is on a per share basis. This says that the, the, the price of a share of stock relative to the earnings of that one share, where again, one share is just one small slice of the whole of the company. So to figure out earnings per share, you'd have to look at the total earnings, total net income, total profit, they're all the same thing, of the company as a whole, divide that by the number of shares outstanding, and that's the earnings per share. So um, again, historically, fifteen to twenty-ish times is is what's been generally viewed as a fair or reasonable price for a stock. So if you do the math and and you come up with you think the earnings per share for this company should be a dollar per share of earnings over the next twelve months, then using these historical norms of fifteen to twenty times PE ratios. That would imply a fair or reasonable price for the stock would be fifteen dollars to twenty dollars per share. So, super basic, well, um, you know, investment logic would be if the if you think the price should be fifteen to twenty dollars, and it's actually only let's say twelve dollars, you can buy the stock for twelve dollars. In theory, that's a good opportunity, right? Because you, you you think you may see something the rest of the world doesn't. You think it should be worth fifteen to twenty bucks per share. It's only trading at twelve per share. If you're that confident. And, and, and you know something here, uh, you're, you're that confident thinking you know something, you can buy it for $12 per share, hope hope the rest of the world eventually realizes what you realize and the price ticks up to 15 to 20 bucks per share, and then you sell it and you make a profit. And, and that's how you would uh, you know monetize this investment in a stock. So, so that's the PE ratio. Sounds simple in theory. A lot of the stuff sounds simple in theory, but... Um, even with this historical norm of knowing that you know 15 to 20-ish times uh, of multiple is is what a reasonable price valuation is for a given dollar amount of earnings per share, there's a lot of guessing and assumptions that go into trying to figure out earnings per share. And therefore, that goes into trying to figure out what's the right price of what this stock should be. So for like, how do you even begin to uh, accurately estimate uh, a company's future earnings or net income, especially if it's a big, large multifaceted complicated business model again with global operations that that you know sell different things how, how do you know you don't know what it's going to be right you can take reasonable guesses and again there's there's armies of people in the industry who make it a very lucrative career trying to you know quote unquote analysts that that try to come up with uh, guesstimates of what they think companies earnings will be but there's a lot of guesswork that goes into this educated guesswork but still guesswork nonetheless um so like, you know, what if you estimate this company's earnings per share will be a dollar per share? 
Or if the person next to you has different information or makes different assumptions and thinks it's only going to be 75 cents per share or someone else thinks it's going to be $1.10 per share, right? So if, if you are all working on different assumptions of what earnings may be, that's all going to equate to you all have different views and opinions of what the right value of the share price should be. Which one of you is ultimately right or wrong? Who knows? Only the future will tell. Um, so it, it, it's really hard. There's a lot of educated guessing about trying to figure out what, what a stock price should be. But in theory, uh, to, to try to give you something to actually digest here and take away, um, th this is the overall gist of using stock as a long-term financial investment. Assuming a company does grow over time, its earnings should increase over time. And again, earnings is just profit, uh, profit or net income of the company. And if and when those earnings do indeed grow, the value of the shares should grow. So therefore, if, you, if it's as simple as, you know, finding a company that's going to do well over the long term, its earnings are going to grow, its profits going to grow, buy its shares as its earnings and company grow over time, the, the price, the value of the share should grow over time such that you can then sell it later for more than what you paid for it. Simple, easy peasy, done. That's stock investing. I'm out. No, just kidding. But, but, but that is sort of the main takeaway of why would you invest in stocks? Because in theory, the price of a stock is, is, is nothing more than a representation of the value of the company. And the value of the company should go up over time. If, uh, if the company does well, grows, its earnings will increase. Therefore, stock price will increase. So that's, that's earnings-based um, sort of valuation approaches and views. There's, there's, a whole, there's dozens, if not more, of different ways to potentially try to value stocks, which further complicates trying to figure out which one's the right one, because none of them are necessarily right. But other common... Uh, ways in which to try to value stocks or something called price to earnings growth. Whereas the PE ratio or price to earnings ratio I just talked about looks at just the actual dollar amount of earnings. The price to earnings growth or PEG, PEG, looks also at the uh, anticipated rate of growth and rate of change of earnings, not just dollar amount of actual you know uh, percentage change in earnings. There's a way to come, try to come up with the stock value based on that. There's price to book ratio, which is again, book value is the, the literal value of everything the company owns or owes. That's its book value. You can do a try to back into a price as a relative of book value. There's price to sales for a given dollar amount of sales, you know, share uh, sales per share. The price of the stock should be X amount, 15, 20, whatever, you know, some whatever multiple you think is right. Price to sales ratio. There's price to free cash flow for companies. Uh, you know, one way to do it is the amount of what's called free cash flow is, is the cash that the company generates in the course of the year. I'll leave it at that. There's more to it, but that's its cash flow, free cash flow. Um, th that that can be you can you can try to value stocks based on some measure of like a, you know a multiple of cash flows. There's a dividend discount model, which is anticipate the future dividends a stock may pay for stocks that pay dividends. Anticipate the future dividends and and try to come up with a present day value. You know what's the the, the today value of receiving the stream of dividends over the lifetime of the stock? What's that worth in today's dollars? There's ways to attempt to do that. So that's how to try to value or price stocks. The other big pickle or um, wrinkle here is that ultimately the stock market is one big fat auction. And like any auction, the price of stuff bought and sold in that auction is literally nothing more than the price at which buyers and sellers are willing to transact. It's that simple. Uh, and, and also that confusing. There's even though you may think a stock should be worth 20 bucks based on your multifaceted analysis of things we just talked about, projecting earnings, doing price to earnings ratio, price to book ratio, price to sales ratio, dividend discount models, whatever. 
you triangulate all these things and come up with the price of $20 per share is what it should be. Well, great. If no one else out there is willing to pay you 20 bucks for it, it's not actually worth $20. Maybe the going price that people are willing to pay is only 18 bucks. That's the price. doesn't matter. You think it should be 20, no matter how high your conviction is in believing it should be 20. If the market wants it to be 18, it's going to be 18. And, and vice versa. Maybe the market's willing to pay $22. You may be like, wow, this thing's only worth 20 bucks. Yet someone out there is willing to pay me $22 in the market. That, that's the right price, right? Even though you think it should be 20, if someone else is going to pay 22, that's the price because it's an auction. Price is whatever participants want it to be. So that's, and, and, and with any auction, there is a lot of subjectivity, irrationality, potentially emotions that come into play that, that really sort of skew and taint the, the pureness doesn't matter how good your data or assumptions or your quantitative analysis is of what a price should be. It's an auction. Price will be what it's going to be. So that's what makes it super complicated in trying to guess or figure out uh, what you think a price should be. Even more difficult, what, what you think a price should be in the future, because you have uh, this, you know, this auction. This uh, auction price is going to be whatever participants want it to be dynamic that really sort of uh, kind of messes stuff up, but not messes up, but, but, but it is what it is. So, all right. Uh, prices change intraday. They, they can literally and often do move by the second just to sort of further complicate things. So over the long term, yes, prices should generally go up, especially if the company grows and its earnings grow, et cetera. But day by day, minute by minute, week by week, month by month, stock prices can do some crazy things. Um, and and they, they often do, unfortunately. Now, in theory, at any given point in time, the, the market price, you know, again, the price at which buyers and sellers are willing to, to trade, the market price should theoretically, theoretically reflect all known information that could potentially impact the future value of this company and the future operations of the company, et cetera. So uh, it's, it's really, with that theory in mind, it's really only new information that kind of comes out of nowhere that, that's new to the market that that truly moves or changes the stock price because the, the the market price as it stands today should already incorporate all of the known information and the market's consensus of what it thinks the company value is going to be over time and therefore what the stock price uh, should be and therefore that that drives what the stock price is today so long way of saying um don't think you have an edge or know something that the rest of the world doesn't even if you you know, with the information you have, it also is a function of how do you apply that? What do you think the price should be based on that? The price you think it should be isn't going to necessarily be the same as what the price of the rest of the world thinks it should be, as I sort of touched on before. Um, another thing, stocks are fairly risky. I already sort of touched on this, but over the long term, good quality companies should grow, should expand. They make good management decisions, good product design and you know development decisions, and make good markets, uh, sell in good markets, they do good advertising, whatever. Companies should grow, which means their earnings should increase over time. Therefore, the total value of the company should increase. Therefore, the value of the stock, the price of the stock should increase over time. So that's why people often say stocks are long-term investments. Good companies are long-term investments. Over the long term, there should typically be uh, a, you know, a, a nice return on this stuff. But Along the way, bad things can happen. Uh, they can be super volatile. Even if a price were to average, let's you know, stock price were to average a ten percent per year increase over the long term—ten years, twenty years, thirty years, whatever it may be—it can fluctuate a lot along the way, year by year, month by month, day by day, even minute by minute, perhaps. So, um, 
this is why stocks are a long-term thing, definitely not a short-term thing because crazy stuff can happen in the short term. Worst case, yes, you obviously buy a stock hoping it goes up in value, but worst case, it can go down a lot, potentially to zero or close to zero, such as the case of a company going bankrupt or getting bought out and closed, for example. Like Lehman Brothers was one of the, the more common, uh, I'm sorry, not common, but one of the best known uh, bankruptcies of modern time. It went bankrupt and you know, the company collapsed, ceased to exist in, uh, in 2008, fall of 2008, during the, the thick of the global financial crisis. So if you were a stockholder in Lehman, you basically got wiped out. Um, I, I don't think, I could be wrong, but I don't think stockholders got any uh, residual value or, or made, I think the bankruptcy case is still working its way through court. It's not done yet, I, I think. But point is, you know, maybe the share, I'm making this up, I don't know what it was, but shares may have been trading $100 per share when things are, were swimming along well for Lehman Brothers. And then all of a sudden, well, not all of a sudden, but you know, eventually it went bankrupt and now the stock's virtually worth zero. Same thing with Enron. This Enron was about 20 years ago at this point. It was sort of the darling of Wall Street and was this huge energy trading company. Um, could do no wrong, made a lot of money. Stock price went up a lot for a lot of people. Ultimately, it, it, was, it was a fraud. It had fraudulent accounting and that brought the company down and it, and it collapsed and went away. And if you were a stockholder in Enron, you got wiped out. So uh, it, any given company, you know, a good company should do well over time, but even the best of companies could end up not being so best, they, they can they can get wiped out either through just normal course of business bankruptcy or it ends up they're, they're a sham, they're a fraud, kind of like Enron was. Uh, on the flip side, a stock could hit it big. Uh, you, you can make boatloads of money in a stock. Um, for example, Monster Energy is up over 110,000% since, uh, since the year 2000. Its shares are trading eight, nine cents per share at the beginning of 2000, they are now $102 per share as of the recording of this episode. If you were to have invested $1,000 in Monster Energy at the beginning of the year 2000, you would now have over $1.1 million today. That's huge. That is not indicative of what most stocks do. That, that's exceptionally juicy. That That's one of those big, uh, I don't call it lottery tickets, but that's the dream of investing in stocks is find that company that's kind of nothing initially you buy it when it's just some small little you know dinky company and it eventually blows up and hits it big and you make boatloads of money that's a monster energy if, if you were bought it in 2000 but for every monster energy there's i don't even know how many other companies that that close their doors and you know walk away it doesn't need to be a big catastrophic collapse like lehman brothers or enron it could just be quietly uh you know what our business isn't working we're shutting down that's it sorry everybody um so anyway so stocks could be risky they can have huge moves in prices over the short term, even over the long term. This is why having diversity is important, diversity in your holdings. If you have just one stock, yes, that stock can make you oodles of money or it can potentially go to zero or anything in between. So diversity is simply having more than just one stock. So if one stock does tank, you have a bunch of other stocks, hopefully that won't tank and therefore still make you some money. Um, that's diversity. Now, how diverse should you be? How do you get diversity? Well, you can buy a bunch of individual stocks yourself and, and create your own custom portfolio of stocks, or you can invest in a fund that does it all for you. I'll talk more about funds in uh, the fourth part of this uh, multi-part series. All right, moving on. Man, this is going to be a long one today. How to actually buy stocks. So I touched on this in the last episode. Um, you need stocks for the most part, stocks only exist now in electronic form. You, you, there's no physical manifestation of stocks like there used to be. There's some still are, but the vast majority of them, there is no physical certificate that evidences your ownership. You own stocks only exist electronically in the ether. You nonetheless still need somewhere to hold that uh, electronic evidence of ownership. 
that's done through an account at a financial custodian, like, and this is not a recommendation, like a Fidelity, a Vanguard, a TD, a Schwab, an E-Trade, et cetera. You open an account there, which account type that that's up to you, like this talked about last week, a regular brokerage account, an IRA, a Roth IRA, whatever it may be. You open up an account and accounts just a bucket that holds your investments in this case holds your stock. So you open the account. You also uh, would buy and sell shares through that broker. So the, the, the account is just the bucket that holds the shares. You still need to buy them to get them into the bucket in the first place. Generally speaking, the same broker that um, is the custodian uh, of your, uh, of your account of your bucket is also going to be the broker that facilitates the buying or selling of shares for you. Now, technically most people don't know this, but you can split it out. So like, for example, if you open an account at Charles Schwab, Schwab is going to be what's called your custodian and that they'll, they'll hold the account that holds the shares. They're also going to act as the broker for you. Meaning when you do actually buy shares, it'll be Charles Schwab that, that, that buys those shares for you. In theory, you can split that up. You can buy the shares through broker ABC and then have those shares land and reside in an account at custodian XYZ. So you can use Schwab as your custodian and go buy the shares through Fidelity. Now, that's what the big institutional players do. They split up the brokers through which they, they actually buy and sell and the brokers through which they um, you know, let, their, let their securities reside. For us, for retail investors, I don't know this is an option. I mean, it might technically be, but I think in reality, if you went to Schwab and be like, hey, Schwab, I want to uh, get my trades bought and sold at Fidelity and have them just get parked in, in my account at Schwab, they may be like, yeah, go away. You know, they, they might not be interested in that, but in theory, it's possible. Anyway, so how do you actually buy? So you open an account, let's just assume it's a normal brokerage account like I discussed last week. Um, how do you actually go buy the stock now? We well, gotta put money into the account and you can either deposit it by check or more commonly, like you set up an ACH bank transfer, transfer some money in. Let's say you, you now put $10,000 cash into your newly opened Vanguard brokerage account or wherever it is. There's gonna be a website. You can log into the website and they'll have a, a screen where you can make the trades. You would select the ticker ticker is just a, a few digits that that denote the shares you want to buy so for example again this is not a recommendation but uh microsoft it's tickers msft you would type in msft you would say the number of shares you want to buy let's assume it's uh, 10 shares um you would say whether you want to buy or sell you click that there's also going to be something called order type or and the, the it'll probably default to what's called market order which means I don't particularly care the price at which I buy or sell, just get this trade executed, You know, make this trade happen ASAP. Once I click this button, I want it to happen as soon as possible. And I'll take whatever price you can get for me. That's that's the market order. You can also do limit orders. There's, there's a bunch of various limits, but one would be like, I wanna buy this share, but only if its price drops down to 57 or whatever. So maybe shares of Microsoft, I'm making this up, but maybe shares of Microsoft are currently trading at $58 and you wanna buy them but only if and when share price drops to 57. So you can put in a limit order to say, buy me 10 shares, but only if the price drops to 57, then you know execute and buy these shares for me. Once once you uh, eventually execute, you know you put in this trade order, the order gets executed, meaning it, it's, you know, it, it happens, made happened. Then the, the shares, you now own the shares. Now, technically it takes two business days for you to formally own the shares, but in reality, you have all the, uh, economic interest of the shares. You know, if the shares go up from the day you you place the trade, you will realize the value of that, even though you don't technically own the shares until two you know two business two trading days later. So that's how you actually buy shares. If you were to buy them directly, you know, electronically through the broker website, uh, almost all brokers you can still call them and do a voice. You know, speak to a live person, be like, "Hey, person, 
put in, I want to buy 10 shares of Microsoft, do that order for me. They'll gladly do it. Uh, there's almost certainly going to be a fee for it. Most, if not all, majority of brokers now, if you if you do the trading yourself through their website, there's usually not uh, specific fees or commissions to buy or sell stocks. But if you call up one of their brokers and talk to a live person, there almost certainly will be some sort of fee You know, every time you do a trade. If you work with an advisor, you'll, you'll similarly have accounts open somewhere, Fidelity, Schwab, wherever it may be. The accounts are in your name, you put your money in, et cetera. But the advisor you hire will have limited power of authority to trade in those accounts on your behalf. So he or she will be the ones doing the trading for you uh, within your accounts. Um, This is kind of technical, but I think it's worth mentioning. When you do place a trade through a broker's website, for example, you think you're just buying or selling from Schwab or from Vanguard or from whatever. There's much more to it behind the scenes. They take that order. They usually send it out to some middle person, uh, some some other company, who who's the one who actually interfaces with the exchange. So now, what's an exchange? An exchange is where stocks are quote unquote listed. An exchange is an organized network of dealers, you know, people or firms who buy and sell and maintain orderly markets, buying and selling securities listed on an exchange. Um, so, so all stock trades ultimately route through whatever exchange they're listed on one way or another. But when you, you place your trade in your retail brokerage account at E-Trade or Vanguard or Fidelity, you click, uh, you think Fidelity is actually buying or selling for you. But in reality, they're probably farming it off behind the scenes to some company you, you don't heard of, you don't see. They're the ones who indirectly are uh, doing the order through the exchange for you. Anyway, just so you know that. Now, as far as exchanges, there are, um, there's two big ones in the U.S. There's the New York Stock Exchange. You all probably heard of. There's also the Nasdaq, N-A-S-D-A-Q, which stands for uh, National Association of Security Dealers Automated Quotation. Um, long story short, that that didn't used to be an exchange. It was really just an uh, electronic meeting place for stocks that weren't listed on a real exchange like New York Stock Exchange. But since 2006, I want to say, uh, Nasdaq now is a formal exchange. You don't really need to know that, but just sort of fun fact. Uh, it doesn't, in, you know... Um, interfere or, or impact how you trade or what you trade. Um, what else? There's, there's some stocks that don't trade through formal exchanges or they're often called OTC or over-the-counter stocks or pink sheets sometimes. Functionally, they're still bought loosely the same. You know, you, you buy them through a broker, you put an order and they like, hey, I want to buy 10 shares of this. But the process behind the scenes of buying and selling is much more manual because there's not this automated electronic exchange for these for these trades to happen through. Uh, it could literally be a bunch of people calling one another, being like, hey, I got 10 shares of this. Someone wants to buy it. Can you transfer it over to me? Yes, cool, good, boom, done. Um, what else? All right, so I'll leave that there. I think that's all I want to talk about, about how to actually buy and sell stocks. Hopefully that made some sense. And finally, uh, some, some, some terminology that's important to know in, in uh, stock investing. There's a term called market capitalization otherwise known as market cap. This I talked about uh, up, up front in this episode. This is simply the total value of all shares outstanding of a company. So for example, you invest in a company that has 10,000 shares outstanding, and let's assume the current share price is $100 per share. You simply multiply the number of shares outstanding times the price per share. That is the market cap or market capitalization of the company. In this example, 10 million shares times $100 per share would mean it's a $1 billion market capitalization. So what's the point of knowing market cap? Well, 
there, there's a terminology for there, there's buckets of classifications of, of companies based on their market cap size. Uh, there's the largest is what's called mega cap. Those are companies that have a market capitalization of $200 billion or more. There's large cap, which is companies that have 10 billion to $200 billion of market capitalization. There's mid cap is 2 billion to 10 billion. There's small cap is 250 million to 2 billion. And there's what's called micro cap, which is companies whose market capitalization is less than $250 million. There's also sectors, another term you may hear a lot. Sectors are simply, the, there's 11 different sectors within the stock market. And a sector is just, um, it's a general field of business. So, so all companies that operate in the same general field of business are, are what's called in the same sector. The 11 sectors are, first is in, in no particular order, healthcare. These are companies that are pharmaceutical companies or make medical devices or providers, you know, healthcare service providers, like, you know, uh, networks that own doctors and hospitals. These are all the healthcare sectors. So, so publicly traded companies, you know, companies that have stock out there uh, in the healthcare sector are, are one of 11 sectors. Next is material sector. These are like construction materials, you know, building materials, chemicals, paper manufacturers, et cetera. Next is real estate companies uh, that, that develop and or manage uh, real estate properties. Consumer staples. This is um, food, beverages, tobacco, household goods. Staples means things people need, uh, and you're always going to need it. You're always going to need groceries. You're always going to need basic beverages. You're always going to, you know, for those who smoke, you need tobacco. Um, basic household goods like um, toilet paper, for example. This would be a consumer staple. Staple meaning something you always have to have. Next is consumer discretionary, whereas staples are things you, you kind of always need. Discretionary are more uh, things you want. Um, and these are, this is also called cyclicals. So this would be like a lot of, uh, retail above and beyond just, you know, the staples, this would be hotels. This would be luxury goods, things that are nice to have things people like when they have, uh, excess money, et cetera, but not necessarily staples. You, you could sort of cut back or eliminate discretionary things, but you can't cut out staples next would be utilities, providers of water, gas, electricity, et cetera. Next would be energy. These are companies involved in the exploration, production, and refining and sale of uh, oil and gas. Next would be industrials. This is pretty wide. Uh, it could mean a lot of things, but it's those that make industrial machinery uh, or those in the aerospace and defense, you know, companies in the aerospace and defense industries. Next would be communication services. This is like telecom providers, uh, those that make telecommunic telecommunication networks, uh, media companies, that you know, uh, movie production companies, et cetera. Next is financials. These are banks, insurance companies, brokerages. And finally is technology. This has multiple sort of subsets to it, like those that make semiconductors used in, in computers, uh, those that make software, those that make hardware, those that are responsible for um, you know, making the cloud and, and, and uh, supporting cloud computing. So those are the 11 sectors. You can have stocks in a combination of those sectors. And then next big terminology is understanding uh, growth versus value. You've probably heard this before, and this is also referred to as like investing or stock style. Um, so you, you can kind of cut all stocks into are they growth or are they value? Growth are companies that have um, <clears throat> are expected to have future growth rates that are going to outpace the market average. This is typically because companies are newer or they're more specialized in what they offer and have a real big competitive edge or they, they're uh, making some disrupt, disruptive technology that's really gonna change the way the world operates. You know, things that have a lot more potential for growth and therefore higher potential stock price gains over the future, that's a growth company. 
Now, they're often more volatile uh, than non-growth companies simply because the nature of their business is a little more, uh, a little more risky, a little more um, uh, variable. Growth companies are less likely to pay dividends than, than other companies because they're more inclined to take the cash they do get, turn around, <clears throat> reinvest it into the business to help the business further grow. Growth stocks, because they rarely have dividends, oh man, my throat got dry. <clears throat> Excuse me. They are bought for for hopes of a large price appreciation. You know, you buy it low and hopefully sell it really high. That, that's that's the general investment thesis in a growth company. A growth company. Now they're often smaller or newer companies. I think I may have said that, but not always. For example, Amazon, probably you know, well, household name, huge company from a market cap perspective, from a from a business operations, from a revenue perspective. That that historically has been a, a growth company, and still still uh, arguably still is as of now. I think I'm not entirely sure, but um, and then growth companies are also often characterized by high PE ratios. Again, PE stands for price of the share relative to earnings per share or net income uh, of the company per share. And this is because investors have a lot of hope for 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 outpaced future business growth. So therefore, they're willing to pay more for the shares now. For a given level of earnings, because they 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 hope and believe and suspect it'll pay off in the end, so so they'll pay up more for it now. Therefore, the price for a given amount of earnings is uh, is going to be higher than for other companies. So high PE ratios. Other so the so that was growth. The other one is value. Value are companies and stocks where the company is generally less volatile. The stock is less volatile because it's a it's a often larger, more established business, and or operates in a sector that that's uh, like consumer staples, much more sort of steady eddy. You're probably not going to hit out of the park with some sort of crazy technology, but yeah, you're not going to lose your shirt when, when there's a recession or something because everyone needs consumer staples, for example. So the performance is usually less volatile. Therefore, stock price uh, is, is usually less volatile. Value companies are more likely to pay dividends because they are more stable, more consistent cash flows, et cetera. Therefore, if you do buy value stocks mostly or solely for dividends, um, that that's your way of trying to monetize and get return from these shares. You, you may be less inclined or concerned to be buying these shares for the hopes of large price appreciation. The uh, value stocks usually have lower PE ratios than than growth stocks, and that's for the opposite reason because you're you're buying this on the assumption its growth isn't going to be outpaced or you know uh, outsized relative to to growth companies. So you're not buying this to try to hit a home run with its price shooting up a lot necessarily. You're 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 buying it because it's a steady eddy uh, potentially because it throws off a generous and or consistent dividend, etc. You're not buying it to, to try to make a huge price gain on it. But on the flip side, maybe the price is undervalued. Maybe the market's um, not quite pricing it right. You know, may, maybe it's not giving it enough respect and uh, assumptions of growth going forward. So the price could be low. So it's low PE ratio, it's low stock price now could actually be a potential buying opportunity uh, for the stock price to go up. All right, and finally, before I wrap here, I wanna talk about the major indexes, which I think technically the plural of indexes indices, but whatever, I might use the terms interchangeably. So these are are terms you probably heard, may not know what they are, uh, but in, in a stock index is nothing more than a hypothetical reference of a bunch of individual stocks. And that index will have a value where that value of the index changes based on the changes of the price of the stocks in that reference basket. So so why have indexes? Well, there there are thousands of companies whose stock is is traded and listed on US exchanges alone, 
plus international companies. So New York Stock Exchange here in the US has about 2,400 stock listings on it. You know, companies have their stock listed on New York Stock Exchange, 2,400 of them. NASDAQ, the other big index, uh, uh, big, big exchange here in the US, has about 2,500 companies whose shares are traded. So US alone, that's roughly, let's call it 5,000 companies have shares traded in the US. An index is a way to attempt to uh, come up with some sort of hypothetical reference of basket of company stocks that that is is uh, intended to be indicative of the market as a whole or a certain sector in the market or you know just market cap type or something. So there needs to be some gauge of you know you want to know how the market do today or this year or this month. You need some gauge, and, and an index is the way to try to do that. Use an index as a proxy of the market at large. You can't just look at one stock and its price change and, and consider that indicative of the market as a whole. That's what these indexes, these indices do. Uh, the most common indexes in the US, first one is the S&P 500, which stands for Standard & Poor's 500. This is an index that references the 500 largest companies whose shares are listed and traded on US stock exchanges. So S&P 500 is literally you know 500 companies. The This is a little technical, but the weightings of each company in this S&P 500 index is based on the market cap of the company. So the larger the market cap of the company, the larger its weighting will be in the index. Fun fact, the top five, the, the five largest companies in the S&P 500 currently make up 18% of the S&P 500 index. So even though there's 500 stocks in it, five stocks account for nearly a fifth of it, meaning that the price change of these five stocks will account for one-fifth of the price change of the S&P 500. So there, there is a decent chunk of concentration here. Specifically, it's Apple, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, and Berkshire Hathaway collectively account for 18% of the S&P 500. Uh, those are the top five. The top 10 uh, account for 25% of, uh, of, the, of the index. Now, here we are, early 2023, talking about this. Before the... Um, sort of bubble burst last year in 2022 when S&P was at an all-time high back in late 2021, <clears throat> the top five companies in the S&P accounted for, I want to, it was like close to 25%, I want to say. It was it was Apple, Amazon, uh, Microsoft, Google, and I think Facebook was the other one in top five, but Facebook has dropped by much more than half since then. And, and all these all these stocks were, were really high at the time. So uh, anyway, the top five accounted for, I want to say it was like 25%. Year year and a half ago, now the top five account for eighteen percent. Still big, but not not nearly as big as they were. So that's the S and P five hundred. Next is the Dow Jones Industrial Average, or otherwise commonly known as the Dow. Whereas the S and P five hundred is five hundred companies, the Dow is is just thirty. That's right, three zero, and and they're picked. Uh, I don't know the entire process, but they're picked sort of. Uh, uh, um, I want to say subjectively, but. The, the the 30 companies in there are meant to be what's called aka blue chip meaning large established sort of bellwether companies here in the us that, that are listed publicly listed um it's the 30 that are supposed to sort of like best represent uh, as best as 30 stocks could best represent the, the us stock market as a whole in, in only 30 companies um it's it's the oldest index it's been around since 1896 and it's called the Dow Jones Industrial Average because it used to be just industrial sector companies. Because back when this index was created over 100 years ago, the U.S. was largely an industrial company. Therefore, the, the stocks that were publicly traded at the time 
were, were primarily industrial companies, companies that made things for industry to help help the company uh, help the country build and grow. Now, the U.S. is much less industrialized from that perspective, and that there's other sectors that have large weightings and prominence in our economy. It's not just industrial companies. So therefore, it's not really an industrial average anymore, but the name still holds from over 100 years ago. Hence, it's called the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Um, just to give a sample of some of the companies there, it's Amex, Apple, Boeing, Chevron, Goldman Sachs, IBM, Intel, Johnson & Johnson, McDonald's, Merck, Microsoft, Nike, Procter & Gamble, United Health, uh, Verizon, Walgreens, and Disney. So you can see that this is a pretty uh, broad sprinkling of different sectors, different companies, different company sizes that, that all do different things that are meant to be indicative of the U.S. as a whole. Um, again, fairly technical, but the way in which this index is created, unlike the S&P index where the companies in it are weighted by their market cap, the companies in the Dow Jones are weighted by their price, their share price, which is interesting because that means the, the, you know, the top five, the top 10 in the Dow are not necessarily the same top five, top 10 in Standard & Poor's because the S&P 500, again, weighted by market cap, where, where the largest market cap companies in the US are Apple, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway. In the, the Dow Jones, it's based on share price. And, and, and share price, you know, the price per share isn't related or it doesn't directly correlate with the, the company's overall market capitalization, which is interesting. So now, um, uh, where the, the, the top five of the Dow Jones Industrial Average account for 34% of the index. The top 10 account for 55%. So even though the Dow, I mean, it's by design, it's a smaller index. There's only 30 companies, but you know, the, only a third of the companies in there account for over half of the daily price changes, which is interesting. Another fun fact, again, because of the difference in way the, the companies are weighted in the Dow Jones versus the S&P 500, Microsoft is the only company that's in both the top 10 of the S&P 500 and the Dow, uh, which, which is weird. So the other ones like um, Apple, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, they're not uh, the, the top 10 in the Dow. And finally, the third big index here in the U.S. is called the, the technically called the NASDAQ Composite, more generally referred to as the NASDAQ. This is all stocks listed <clears throat> listed on the NASDAQ exchange, which again, I said it was about 2,500 stocks roughly. So the NASDAQ Composite Index uh, is, is, is um, you know, a basket that, that weights and blends together the, the daily price change of all 2,500 stocks in or, or, or listed on the NASDAQ exchange. Um, within that, there's also another common NASDAQ index called the NASDAQ 100, specifically just the 100 largest non-financial companies listed on the NASDAQ exchange. Uh, that, that's its own separate sort of sub-index. Why do people look at that as opposed to the NASDAQ as a whole? Well, because the NASDAQ 100 accounts for over 90% of the price movement of the, uh, the overall NASDAQ composite. So basically, you know, the other 2,400 shares or stocks that trade on NASDAQ, it's like, thanks for showing up. But you really don't matter that much in the grand scheme of this index and what moves the index. So the NASDAQ 100 is really just a, the largest 100 traded on the NASDAQ. Uh, the, the way the, the weightings are, are created, uh, you know, the way the companies are, are weighted, it's like the S&P 500 index and in that it's a market cap based uh, weighting system. Now, Indexes are just hypothetical references. You, you can't directly invest in an index because like the Dow Jones Industrial Average is, 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 is just this hypothetical basket that says of these 30 stocks, 
here's what their their blended sort of price is for the day and you can follow the changes day to day you can't directly invest in the index because the index is just a reference of 30 underlying stocks now you can buy the 30 underlying stocks or you can buy a fund that 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 tries to that turns around and invest in the 30 stocks i'll talk about that more in uh part four of this of this series but just anyway know that indexes are just hypothetical references are not something that can be directly invested in because they are this sort of hypothetical thing now uh, the same company could be in multiple indices for example apple apple shares are in all three of these indexes they're on the nasdaq composite because they trade on that apple trades on the nasdaq it's the nasdaq 100 because apple's one of the 100 largest it's in the Dow Jones Industrial Average, just because it was picked to be there. And it's also in the S&P 500 because Apple is uh, currently the largest company in the U.S. by, by market capitalization. So um, which which index is is the best or the worst or why, why have different ones? Well, this depends. They sort of do different things. People have different views about them. Uh, I feel the S&P is probably the most indicative of the U.S. stock market as a whole. Now, granted, it's only 500 companies, whereas there's about 5,000 companies in the US, but practically the, these 500 are going to account for the vast, vast majority of, uh, you know, the daily stock price movements and stock changes here in the US. It spans all sectors because it's 500 companies. So it's it's a pretty good representation of, um, you know, the stock market as a whole, US stock market as a whole, in my opinion, whereas the Dow Jones, it's, it's kind of goofy. It's only 30 companies. Now, not to say those 30 aren't broadly, um, you know, indicative of the, of the various sectors and companies in the U.S., but it's only 30 companies. Like, come on, man. Uh, my, my view is I, I suspect it's only around just because it has like legacy value. It was the first index. It's been around forever. There's there's this sort of um, historical attachment and, and, and kind of romanticized view of it, in my opinion. Uh, so that's why it's around. But I, I frankly think the Dow Jones should simply just disappear. Um I also don't like that it's price weighted. You know, the, the the value of the company weightings within the Dow is based on the share price of those things. Share price really means nothing. Market capitalization, at least fundamentally, makes sense. The bigger the market cap, the larger the company is. So in theory, the larger company should have more representation in the index, as is the case with the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ, not the case with the Dow Jones. So I personally don't like the Dow. I don't pay attention to it. I think it's dumb. I think it's pretty arbitrary. But whatever a lot of people look at it it's usually the first one referenced on financial media like cnbc it doesn't make it right i'm just saying it's it, it kind of it's been around forever and I don't, I don't ever see it getting jettisoned uh the nasdaq kind of tech heavy I, I think about half of the companies that are traded on nasdaq are technology companies so in that sense the nasdaq index is is largely a gauge of the technology industry uh, uh sector it's not that accurate of a gauge of the u.s um <clears throat> economy or stock market as a whole, in my opinion. And it's largely tech companies because historically, NASDAQ was a uh, reason behind this. Before it was an exchange, it, it was a place where shares that were too small to get traded on a proper exchange like the New York Stock Exchange, that's where they sort of got uh, traded and, and unofficially listed was through NASDAQ. So it has this history of being sort of the smaller companies. And oftentimes, a lot of the small startup type things are or have been tech companies in that history, even though NASDAQ now is a formal proper exchange, I think that sort of history and branding and identity of NASDAQ ha has carried forward such that it's still sort of this, uh, um, get some of the smaller, often tech oriented companies. Now they're not all small. Apple, uh, Apple trades on uh, NASDAQ, for example, and that's huge. So, um, anyway, just, just goes to show. 
All right, that that's it for my uh, my stock. What what to know about stocks as far as investing? Hopefully, you found this interesting. Um, definitely is long. Definitely a lot a lot to talk about. And and probably this, even with as much as I've said so far, this only really scratches the surface about understanding stocks. But hope is at least a good primer for you. Hope you pick something up. You learned a little bit about some of the vernacular and, and, and basics of understanding what a stock is and why one would consider investing in it. All right. Um, if you like this podcast, definitely check out retirementplanningeducation.com where you can not only find the, this podcast, but you can find my YouTube channel by the same name, Facebook group by the same name, and a whole bunch of uh, fantastical free downloadable stuff to help with retirement planning education. I just recently added a blog where once a month there will be some uh, written uh, information there as well for, for you all to read. And I would greatly appreciate if you do like this podcast, if you would take a few moments to leave a review on whatever podcast platform listening uh, venue you have, you use, whether it's Apple, uh, Google, Amazon, Stitcher, uh, a whole bunch, I don't know, Spotify, Pandora. I think a lot of them do have a, a way to leave a thumbs up or five star or whatever it may be. All right, that's it. I'm uh, I'm parched. I got to go. I'm running out of voice here. Um, I will be sure to come back next time when I talk about uh, part three of my multi-part series on intro to investing, where I will talk about bonds. That's going to be a good one. All right. See you next time. Take care. The information discussed in this podcast is only general explanations and education. It is not specific tax, legal, or investment advice. Before considering acting on anything you heard here, first consult with your tax, legal, or investment advisor. Thank you. Thank you.